You might have heard of the book of Esther. You might know some things from the book of Esther. The story might be very familiar to you. Uh, we've been covering a, a few uh, of the sections of Esther just, just to get started. And we found that there is a lot of uh, irony. There are twists and turns in the book of Esther. Things appear to be one way, but they're actually another way. And that's part of the work of God, because the book of Esther doesn't mention the name of God. It doesn't really have explicit prayer or sacrifice. It's something that is a very strange time in the, in the history of redemption. It's very difficult to understand. And these twists and turns have already resulted in uh, Queen Vashti being uh, excused from being queen, and Esther is now the, the queen. So it begins to be revealed that, that God is doing something uh, for the people of God. And yet it's a strange situation because Esther is in a situation where uh, she has been raised by Mordecai and she is not able to speak of her heritage. She's not able to speak of the fact that she's Jewish. That's very important to the story because typically what kings did is they they uh, were supposed to marry people that were in a designated uh, group uh, in the family tree that was that was designated for them. Uh, this wasn't supposed to happen this way, but this is something that King Ahasuerus did because of his advisors. And as we turn to verse 19, we see something strange. The virgins are gathered together a second time. What does that mean? Well, it means that these twists and turns uh, begin to show not only the bright spots of God's work uh, in such a dark place, but also the dark nature of what it is to be in Persia. Esther is married to this man, but he still has virgins gathering together. He still has concubines. He still has his harem, and he is still continuing to pursue gathering them. So he's married to Queen Esther, but he's not exclusively married to her. He's in a relationship with any of these concubines that are gathered together. And that's something that we need to understand. It's a power-hungry, lust-filled place, the land of Persia. And there are dark things that happen. Mordecai has apparently received a, a point, a place of some sort of uh, influence in, in the kingdom. He's sitting within the king's gate. You might remember from the book of Ruth in chapter 4 that the king's gate is where important business was conducted and so uh, Mordecai has a, a place in the king's gate and he's within uh, distance uh, a, a short distance of uh, Esther he's able to get messages to her that's quite important for this story it appears at this time from archaeology that this was a very large structure so it's reasonable that Mordecai would be able to sit uh, in a place uh, within the king's gate. And we read uh, very clearly in verse 20, Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For, Mor for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. She was essentially his daughter and she was listening to him. We already saw the last time how uh, Esther listened to those who were giving her counsel when it came to uh, entering into the, the king on the, on the first time. And she became queen because she was listening. She continues to listen to Mordecai. But there's one thing that she has to be very careful about, and that is revealing her family and her people. 
she can't reveal that she's Jewish. In other words, the God's people are in a, in a place that is so dark, they, they can't even reveal who they are because they would be in danger. That's the kind of place uh, into which uh, God has brought Esther and Mordecai. And they need to be together because in those days when Mordecai sat within the king's gates, two of his eunuchs, Bigthon and Teresh, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is a plot to kill the king by two of his own eunuchs. Eventually, this king will be assassinated uh, in the bedroom of one of his officers. This is what happens in power-hungry Persia. This is why it's important that Esther keeps her mouth shut, because this is a place where people are actually willing to murder even the king, the one who has all of this power. Big Thun and Teresh. It's a plot. It's a, a stated desire uh, to kill the king because you're angry with him. And Mordecai finds out. God has placed him in a place where Mordecai can get the information. The information that is going to ultimately save the king's life. Surely the king, according to the, the practice of the Persians, is going to recognize Mordecai, right? Mordecai is going to be acknowledged. He's going to be exalted even further in Persia. I mean, that's the way it should happen, right? That's the way the story is supposed to go. Mordecai informs the king. The king is very grateful. We find out later on in the story. He does find out. But that's not the way it goes. Mordecai tells this to Queen Esther. And Esther informs the king in Mordecai's name. Mordecai is mentioned. Mordecai is the one who has, who has saved the king's life by sharing this information. But it goes Nowhere. An inquiry is made into the matter. It's confirmed. And Big Thon and Teresh are hanged on the gallows. They're impaled on a stake. And it's written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It's written down. Mordecai's name is recorded. He's the one who was involved in saving the king's life from these people who plotted against him. Later on, if you know the story, you know that the king couldn't sleep one night. And he pulls out the most boring uh, bedtime reading that he can possibly find. The book of the Chronicles of the King. Accounts of what, what happened, what I did during my rule. And he's going to run across Mordecai's name. But at this point... It goes nowhere. In fact, the, the action just changes to the beginning of chapter 3. We start to learn about Haman. Haman is the one who's going to be exalted. Mordecai continues to be unrecognized. And if you read some... Uh, Reform literature, there's a, there's a book called Promise of Deliverance. It's written by a guy named De Graff. He says Mordecai is a type of Jesus Christ. So if he's a type of Jesus Christ, I want, I want to suggest that in the book of Esther, it's, it's a little bit more uh, multifaceted than that. But if Mordecai is a type of Jesus Christ, in what way? 
It was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In what way? Being unrecognized. Being unrecognized in a power-hungry place. A place of great cruelty. A place where people are actually uh, not uh, recognized for what they do. Esther's not in a position of security. Mordecai is not in a position where he's going to be ultimately recognized for what he has done. Who gets lifted up at this point in the story? It's Haman. It's Haman in chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Haman is lifted up. Haman is recognized. Haman is exalted. Mordecai is not. Now we're going to learn about the interaction between Mordecai and Haman as we move forward in the story. But it's important that you recognize the contrast between these men. What's going on here? What's going on in power-hungry Persia when Mordecai is not being recognized for saving the king's life and Esther has to deal with, with other women who are involved in the king's bed? And she can't even mention her heritage. She can't even say that she's Jewish because it would be dangerous for her. What's going on is that God is actually dealing with some unfinished business in the history of redemption. We read in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And we read in Exodus 17 that God said he was going to be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. And you know who Haman is? We're told in verse 1. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Agag, that name of the, of the Amalekite king, that either, it, it's either a name or it's a title of the, Agagite, of the Amalekite king is Agag in 1 Samuel 15. This is the war that God said he was going to fight from generation to generation. There's someone still around who represents that side. That is why God has brought Mordecai to this place. Because Mordecai has something that Queen Esther does not have. Queen Esther is willing to listen Queen Esther has, uh, has beauty, but she also has this personality where she's willing to listen and she, and she obtains favor. But Mordecai has an incredible backbone. And the one thing that we know about Mordecai is that uh, chapter 2 and verse 5 says that he's a son of Kish. That's the father of King Saul. So you see how the story is beginning to unfold. Haman is an Agagite. He's one of the people that represent the enemies of God. And Mordecai is a son of Kish. He is a descendant of King Saul. And he is going to stand up against Haman, this one who's exalted. This ancient battle is taking place. And it's a very important battle. You might think, well, okay, why is God 
talking about the Amalekites and trying to deal with them, even in Persia. There's not very many of them. There's only one. There's Haman. You know, what's the big deal? Why can't he just, you know, let, let the people of God finally find a way out of there and go back to their land? Well, it's because this battle is a battle that began way back in the garden. It's the battle of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it resurfaces at, at a number of different times in the history of redemption. Here, we're reading about the battle between Amalek and the people of God. We're reading about the Agagite, Heman, as a representative of those people, and we read about Mordecai as a representative of the Jewish people, even in this place where things operate quite differently. What you don't read about in the book of Esther is that Mordecai set the terms of the distinction between the people of God and the, the people of the world, like Daniel did in Babylon with regard to dietary laws, with regard to the food that he would he'd be willing to eat. No, Mordecai takes his stand somewhere else. Mordecai is going to refuse to bow to Haman because Haman is an Agagite. That's what the text tells us. That's where the conflict lies. And Mordecai has been raised up to have the backbone, to stand behind Esther, and to stand against Haman. And this is the way that God shows how the battle is being won. When we get to the New Testament, we find that King Herod is actually trying to wipe out Jesus Christ when he is a baby, two years old. He comes from the line of people that are mentioned here. This is a battle that needs to be fought in God's way. It needs to be fought in God's timing. And God is doing this in Persia through this uh, man, Mordecai. King Ahasuerus uh, promotes Haman. Persia is lifting up Haman. The Agagites seem to be winning. He advanced them. He set his seat above all the princes who were with him. It takes a long time before this story is going to be resolved in regard to Haman. Ultimately, the victory of God is going to be displayed. God is going to be the one who obtains the victory over uh, the enemies of God. But it's important that we recognize that this is the same way in which the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. We can quickly think of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he uh, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's going to come back. He's going to judge the world. But we must not forget how the Lord Jesus Christ entered into this world. He entered into this world as one who was unrecognized, as one whose own people did not receive him, one who was essentially uh, led through an exile, in many ways, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted one now, that the church sees the spread of the gospel. 
So when the church experiences this kind of uh, condition, this condition of being unrecognized, this condition of being humiliated, this con condition of waiting for uh, the time of being lifted up, we need to know that God has unfolded this pattern before. He's unfolded it uh, in the life of Mordecai. He's unfolded it in the life of Esther. He's unfolded it in the life of Jesus Christ. In order to demonstrate to us that God's timing, that God's ways will obtain the, the proper result. God has provided for us to see the pattern of redemption here in the life of Mordecai. And that's how he shows us a little bit about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to suggest to you as we move forward that it's through Esther and through Mordecai that we see pictures of, of the, the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. But Mordecai is the one who has the backbone. Mordecai is the one who will refuse to bow to Haman. Mordecai is the one who will be standing against uh, the uh, enemy of God who is a threat to the Jews. Ultimately, Persia doesn't really care if someone's Jewish. It's Haman who cares. It's Haman who wants to destroy the Jewish people. It's Haman who is the threat. And God has provided through this winding, curving story, this story of lack of recognition and this story of patience and setback after setback, this story of, of angst and confusion, a picture of the steady work towards victory that characterizes the work of Jesus Christ. Today there are people who are serving God in foreign lands, lands that will not allow them to gather in groups of 20 people or more, where they have to actually leave in groups of two and leave secretly so they are not detected. And they can't sing because they will be detected. There are places like that that I know about and that some of you have heard about. The work of the victorious Lord Jesus Christ is matching the pattern of his work when he came to this earth as one who was unrecognized, as one whose very life was threatened by someone like King Herod. Let's remember that as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Early Father, we recognize that when you accomplish deliverance in the book of Esther, you accomplish it in ways that are patient and slow and in ways that seem to be setbacks, in ways that seem to be uh, exalting the loser, the one who is unrecognized. And it is through this pattern that we see more clearly the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the knowledge that we have today that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the place of victory 
has been given all authority in heaven and on earth in heaven and on earth we know that he is coming back and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord we know that the lord jesus christ is the one that will be demonstrated to be the reigning lord and all will acknowledge it but that is not what we see around us in every place now help us to see the pattern of your work help us to see your patient uh, working out of your plans help us to see how you caused the seed of the serpent to be defeated again and again and how you show it uh, in the battle against Amalek and the Agagites and father we thank you for how you have revealed it to us in the book of Esther and this power hungry lust filled place this place where it is dangerous to be of the people of God like the world into which Jesus Christ came give us the confidence that you are the one who works all things well according to your plan and we pray all these things with thanksgiving in Jesus name amen